0: Well, you know, if you've spent much time at all in your life uh, attending a church, at least one that consistently teaches the Bible, uh, then no doubt you've heard the stories about Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, probably even if you've not attended church much at all, but you grew up in this country, you've still probably heard something about him at some point in your life because the fact is, There is no other singular influence throughout history that has had a greater impact on Western civilization than Jesus Christ. Uh, Our calendar is based on his birth. The greatest universities, hospitals, uh, works of art, philosophy, and culture were derived from the Christian church. Some of the most celebrated works of art ever produced came from Christian artists like Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo and Raphael. Some of the greatest uh, musical works ever written have come from Christian composers such as Mozart and Beethoven and Pachelbel, uh, Vivaldi, Bach, Handel. The list goes on and on and on. During the Middle Ages... The Christian church not only replaced the Roman Empire as the singular unifying force throughout Europe, but also preserved literacy itself through its schools and monasteries. In fact, to date, do uh, you know that the Bible is the most translated, most printed, most purchased, most read, and most followed book ever produced in the history of the world? And now, 2,000 years after his birth, still a third of the world's population claims to be followers of Jesus Christ. Without question, his is the most influential life ever lived. What, what is questionable, however... Or at least what is worth questioning and certainly a far more important topic to us today than how much uh, influence Jesus Christ has had on Western civilization is how much influence the life of Jesus Christ has had on your life personally. Because you can know all of the stories, of course, about Jesus. You can be uh, well-versed in the Holy Scriptures. You can attend church every single time the doors are open and even have a tremendous grasp on biblical theology, Christian theology, and still not live a life that has actually been changed by that truth. If you've been here for the past few months, you know that we've been studying our way through the Old Testament book of Judges, together. And a few weeks ago at the end of chapter 8, right after Gideon, the leader of the Israelites at the time, dies, it says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. Judges eight thirty three and 34. Now look, when it says the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. If you read that in the ancient Hebrew language, the original language it was written in, and particularly if you read it in in context, it is not saying that the people forgot in their minds who God was or what he'd done for them. No, it's saying they stopped allowing their knowledge of him to influence the way they actually lived their lives and their loyalties, their commitment to him. And so they chased after false gods, after idols, the, the allure of the culture around them, rather than pursuing a deeper relationship with God himself. They did not remember him in the sense that although they actually knew more about him than any other people group on earth at the time, they lived their lives as if he was of no consequence to them at all. You see, they remembered him in their minds, But they forgot him in their hearts. And honestly, one of my great fears as a pastor in this culture is that many of God's people, much of his church, is as guilty of forgetting God in our lives today as his people were then. We know all about Jesus in this culture, but how has that understanding, the truth of his word, actually changed the way that we live our lives every single day? Because knowing his word and living out his word are two very different things. You can know a lot about Jesus Christ. In fact, there are religion professors in some of our universities who have probably forgotten more about biblical theology and the life of Christ than most of us will ever know. And yet they deny the very deity of Christ. They deny his lordship, his sovereignty, his kingship over the world and over their lives, of course. Why is that? Why do people not remember Jesus Christ in the sense that they do not allow the truth about who he is to impact their lives as profoundly as it could, as it should? Unless we think uh, this is merely an indictment against unbelievers, how common is it to see believers, Christians chasing after just about everything but Jesus when looking for fulfillment and peace and joy and purpose and love in their lives today oftentimes Christians are just as guilty as anyone else of elevating other things to that place in our lives that is supposed to be reserved for christ alone why do we do that it's because we've forgotten we know it in our minds But we've forgotten it in our hearts, the fact that Jesus Christ is different from all of those other things that we pursue. There's nothing else or no one else like Him. No one else can do what He's done for this world. And no one else can promise what He's going to do for this world. No other king is worthy of our devotion. That's why He said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. With all your soul and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 37 through 39. This is the law of Christ that he said we are to live our lives by, and it is a law that is supposed to be written on our hearts, not just stored in our minds. Why? So that we never forget who it is that our lives are dedicated and devoted to. The Apostle Paul said, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Romans 2.13, and then in verse 15, he goes on to say, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts this was the problem the Israelites were having in our story. As we'll see today, as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Judges, they knew all about God, but they'd forgotten in their hearts what he'd done for them in their past, and they'd forgotten what he promised to do for them in their future. And as a result, they were clamoring after other things to rule their lives. They served other gods, false gods. They Panted after Abimelech, this illegitimate son of Gideon, to be their king, even though they were to have no other king but God Himself. And the result, as we'll see, was disaster in their lives and yet as ancient as this story is it could not be any more relevant for our lives today because although Jesus was clear that we are to have no other king in our lives but him sometimes we clamor after other things that we allow to rule over our lives listen there's absolutely nothing wrong with having nice things okay But when the desire for nice things overrules your desire for Christ, then in your heart, you've forgotten who He actually is and what He's done for you. There's nothing wrong, obviously, with pursuing human relationships. But when the pursuit of a human relationship overrules your pursuit of a relationship with Christ, then in your heart, you've forgotten who He actually is and what He's done for you. There's nothing wrong uh, inherently with seeking pleasure. But when seeking pleasure in the world overrules the pleasure that you seek to find in Christ, then in your heart you've forgotten who he actually is and what he's done for you. You see, there's nothing wrong with experiencing sorrow or sadness at times in our lives. We all know that's simply a reality of living in an imperfect world. But look, if your sorrow and sadness turns into depression and hopelessness that overrules the joy and hope that you have in Christ, then in your heart you have forgotten who He actually is and what He's done for you. And so today as we work through the second half of chapter 9 of the book of Judges and consequently uh, the second half of the sermon we began last week, I'm asking you to consider with me if there's anything in your life that you have become devoted to more than you're devoted to Christ. And if so, then I would respectfully ask you to consider whether or not you've forgotten in your heart who Jesus Christ actually is and what he's done for you. Because if you're serving anything in your life more than you're serving him, the end result of that kind of life ultimately is not the fulfillment and joy and peace and love that we're all looking for. No. The result of allowing other things to be king in your life ultimately is emptiness and loss. Because we cannot take anything in this life with us into eternity other than that which we find in Christ Jesus. So let's pick up the story then, right where we left off last week, and see if we can remind ourselves just exactly who he is and what he's done for us. We'll begin at chapter 9 and read verses 22 through 33. And remember, if you're you're keeping an outline... Last week we covered points 1 and 2 of this sermon, so today we'll be looking at points 3 and 4 as we finish the chapter. So, verses 22 through 33 of chapter 9. Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem, and the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. That The violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam, you'll remember Jeroboam is another name for Gideon, his father, might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem, who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. The leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him on the mountaintops, and they robbed all who passed by them along the way, and it was told to Abimelech. And Gael, the son of Ebed, moved into Shechem with his relatives, and the leaders of Shechem put confidence in him, and they went out into the field and gathered the grapes from the vineyards and trod them and held a festival and they went into the house of their God and ate and drank and reviled Abimelech. And Gale, the son of Ebed said, Who is Abimelech and who are we of Shechem that we should serve him? Is he not the son of Jerubbaal and is not Zebel his officer? Serve the men of Hamor, the father of Shechem, but why should we serve him? Would that this people were under my hand, then I would remove Abimelech. I would say to Abimelech, Increase your army and come out. When Zebel, the ruler of the city, heard the words of Gale, the son of Ebed, his anger was kindled, and he sent messengers to Abimelech secretly, saying, Behold, Gale, the son of Ebed, and his relatives have come to Shechem, and they're stirring up the city against you. Now, therefore, go by night, you and the people who are with you, and set an ambush in the field. Then, in the morning, as soon as the sun is up, rise early and rush upon the city. When he and the people who are with him come out against you, you may do to them as your hand finds to do. So just a little backstory to catch you up here in case you missed last week. After the death of Gideon, the leader that God had put over Israel at the time, Abimelech, the son of Gideon's concubine, convinced the leaders of Shechem, the city where his mother was from, to help him become the king over Israel, even though he could rightfully make no such claim, as children of concubines, typically in the uh, ancient Near East, had no inheritance rights whatsoever. Still, he was intent on becoming king anyway, so the leaders of Shechem took money out of the temple of their pagan god, Baalbereth, so that Abimelech could hire mercenaries to help him kill the other 70 sons of Gideon. These were the, the, the sons of the wives of Gideon's harem, sons who would rightfully inherit Gideon's position and power and wealth, which means... Of course, they're standing in the way of Abimelech rising to power. And so earlier in the chapter, we find Abimelech killing the other 70 sons. In fact, he sacrifices them one at a time on a pagan altar, probably to gain favor with the Israelites, who had turned to worshiping Baal-Bareth as well. Yet the youngest son... A man named Jotham escapes and he climbs to the top of Mount Gerizim overlooking the city of Shechem. And there he pronounces a curse over the men of Shechem and over Abimelech for what they'd done. And then Jotham goes into hiding as Abimelech then rules Israel for the next three years until God sends an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. Now, why would God, who's good, Send an evil spirit to affect the outcome of this treachery by Abimelech and the men of Shechem. Well, keep in mind, these were evil men with evil intent, bent on doing evil things to God's people. In other words, God didn't cause evil to arise in the hearts of the people involved. They did that all on their own. They were already bent on destroying each other and ultimately oppressing and destroying those who were actually chosen by God to lead. We've already seen as much as Imbimelech, with the help of these Shechemite men, killed the 70 sons of God's chosen man, Gideon. And so God isn't creating an evil situation here. He's merely exercising his sovereignty over an already evil situation in order to determine a righteous outcome. And so the result... As the leaders of Shechem put men in ambush against him, that is Abimelech, on the mountaintops and they robbed all who passed by them along the way. This was a direct challenge both politically and financially to Abimelech's rule because these were uh, important trade routes that ran along the tops of the mountains around Shechem. Which means by ambushing those who were coming and going, they were depriving Abimelech of the fees, the dues, the taxes that were paid to him from the caravans of traders coming in and out of the city as they would trade and sell their goods. It also caused the number of caravans to reduce drastically. You see, they were bleeding Abimelech dry of one of his main sources of income. And at the same time, they were devastating him politically because he was no longer able to guarantee safe passage to those coming in and out of the city, the very seat of his own power. Then to make matters worse for Abimelech during the great New Year festival of the Canaanites, uh, this is where they would gather the summer fruits at the season of vintage harvest at the end of uh, the summer and basically uh, they would throw a massive drunken party with, with everything you can imagine that usually goes along with massive drunken parties. And there at this festival, a Shechemite man named Gael convinces these same leaders who just three years earlier helped Ambimelech murder all 70 of Gideon's other sons, save one, Gael at this party, while, while they're all a bit inebriated, convinces these leaders to support him in his own bid to overthrow Abimelech. And yet to make it even more interesting, Zebul, one of Abimelech's henchmen, was there at the party. And in fear of losing his own position after hearing Gael's plan, Zebul sends messengers to Abimelech to convince him to ambush the men of Shechem in order to retain his power over the people. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practiced to deceive, right? This is a colossal mess, and it is exactly what happens when we forget who God is in our hearts and what he's done for us. The moment we no longer allow who he is and what he's done for us to influence our lives, to impact our daily lives, I'm telling you, it's every man for himself. And so now, the only guiding force left in these men's lives at this point is their own selfish interest. They are now wholly living for themselves, and the results speak for themselves. Let's keep reading. Verses 34 through 49. So Abimelech and all the men who were with him rose up by night and set an ambush against Shechem in four companies. And Gale, the son of Ebed, went out and stood in the entrance of the gate of the city. And Abimelech and the people who were with him rose from the ambush. And when Gale saw the people, he said to Zebel, Look, people are coming down from the mountaintops. And Zebel said to him, You mistake the shadow of the mountains for men. And Gale spoke again and said, Look, people are coming down from the center of the land, and one company is coming from the direction of the diviner's oak. And then Zebel said to him, where is your mouth now, you who said, Who is Abimelech, that we should serve him? Are not these the people whom you despised? Go out now and fight with them. And Gale went out at the head of the leaders of Shechem and fought with Abimelech. And Abimelech chased him, and he fled before him. And many fell wounded up to the entrance of the gate. And Abimelech lived at Arima. and Zebel drove out Gael and his relatives so that they could not dwell at Shechem. And the following day the people went out into the field, And Abimelech was told, he took his people and divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields. And he looked and saw the people coming out of the city, so he rose against them and killed them. Abimelech and the company that was with him rushed forward and stood at the entrance of the gate of the city, while the two companies rushed upon all who were in the field and killed them. And Abimelech fought against the city all that day. He captured the city and killed the people who were in it, and he razed the city and sowed it with salt." When all the leaders of the tower of Shechem heard of it, they entered the stronghold of the tower of Elbereth. Abimelech was told that all the leaders of the tower of Shechem were gathered together. And Abimelech went up to Mount Zalman, he and all the people who were with him. And Abimelech took an axe in his hand and cut down a bundle of brushwood and took it up and laid it on his shoulder. And he said to the men who were with him, What you have seen me do, hurry and do as I have done. So every one of the people cut down his bundle and following Abimelech Put it against the stronghold, and they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the Tower of Shechem also died, about a thousand men and women. So Abimelech not only ambushes Gael and his military men who fought with him, but the next day, when the people of the city go out to work in the fields, you understand, these are non-combatants. The, the battle happened the day before, it's done. Abimelech won, Gale and his men are gone. They're going back out to work the fields, right? And Abimelech rushes upon them and he butchers them all. Then he goes into the city itself and he completely destroys it and he sows it with salt, which was not only a symbolic gesture of ruin and curse on the land, but in the practical sense, it would also render the soil worthless for planting. And yet, all of that. was still not enough for Abimelech as some of the leaders, about a thousand men and women, had retreated and locked themselves into Shechem's defensive tower. And so Abimelech leads his men to Mount Zalman. It was a a heavily wooded hill just south of Mount Gerizim where they gathered wood from the branches of the trees and then piling them up at the base of the tower. Abimelech burns what is left of the Shechemite population alive. Kills the very people who put him into power in the last remnant of the city, of his own stronghold. So he destroys the enemy and the army who rose up against him. He destroys the non-combatants, the farmers and field workers. He destroys probably his own kin who lived in the city. He destroys the city itself, his very stronghold. He destroys its future source of livelihood, the very soil that could no longer be used for planting. And he destroys the men and their families who put him into power in the first place. You understand? He could have stopped after killing Gael and his army on the first day. At that point, the city and its leaders probably would have gotten the message and fallen into line under his leadership. Besides which, they were drunk when they agreed to follow Gael in the first place. But Abimelech, their king... The king they'd panted after. The king they had pursued. The king they were convinced would bring them happiness and prosperity and fulfillment. Turns out he wasn't actually interested in them at all. He wasn't interested in being merciful. He wasn't interested in restoring his own city. He wasn't interested in making their lives better. He wasn't interested in sacrificing anything of his own for the sake of his own people. No, he was only interested in himself. And so the moment they were disagreeable toward him, he destroys them all. This is the case. With every other king that we allow to rule over our lives today. Remember what we said last week. Outside of Jesus Christ, whatever rules you will ultimately ruin you. You understand that's the difference between Jesus and every other would-be spiritual ruler and king in our lives. No other king gave up his life for yours. You see, Jesus didn't just die on a cross he died on a cross for you and for me. He sacrificed his own life for people who hated him. The very people who were killing him and yet even beyond that, beyond that moment knowing every single thing that we would ever do in this life, undeserving of that sacrifice, every sin, every Offense, every selfish act, every hurtful word, every single God hating moment of our lives, He could see every bit of it. And yet He chose to die for us anyway. Of course, we know what that says about Him. Because no one else could do what he did. No one else could make atonement for our sins by offering their own life in place of ours. No one else could endure the suffering of the cross while bearing the weight of every offense we'd ever commit or ever will commit. No one else could conquer death so that we might have eternal life. No one else could raise from the dead, proving that everything he said about himself was true. No one else could send his own spirit to fill ours with the power and wisdom and strength that we would need to carry out his will for our lives. No one else could do what Jesus did. And of course, we know what that says about him. That he was God in the flesh, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the only true king. We know what it says about him. But do you know what it says about you? Can you begin to fathom what you are worth? That a holy God would send his perfect righteous, blameless, innocent, one and only son to suffer the most brutal death for you. Can you even can you even grasp the the magnitude of what that says about you? What you mean to God that he would go to the most unfathomable lengths to save you from the wrath that every single one of us deserves. You see, we wouldn't sell ourselves so short so easily in this life if we really understood just how much we're actually worth. We wouldn't settle for the pleasures of this world if we really understood the pleasure that he takes in us. His creation. Psalm 149.4 says the Lord takes pleasure in his people. We wouldn't be satisfied with the riches of this world if we had any inkling whatsoever of the riches to be found in the depths of relationship available to us in Christ Jesus. We wouldn't allow ourselves to become hopeless about the future if we honestly believe that he secured our future on that cross 2,000 years ago. And listen, we wouldn't hate ourselves like so many people hate themselves today if we really grasped just how profoundly he loves us. Do you have any idea at all how much you are worth to him? No other king gave up his life for yours. Remember that next time. Something other than Jesus Christ wants to rule over your life. You just ask yourself, what what could that person or that thing, what could they possibly give up for me that could ever compare to what Jesus has given up for me? We must always remember that. The people of Israel had forgotten it, and the result was disaster in their lives. Let's read it and see, verses 50 through 55. Then Abimelech went to Thebes and encamped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city, and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in, and they went up on the roof of the tower. And Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. A certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. Then he called quickly to the young man, his armor-bearer, and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, lest they say of me. A woman killed him. And his young man thrust him through, and he died. And when the men of Israel saw that Abimelech was dead, everyone departed to his home. And so even after completely annihilating Shechem and its entire population, Abimelech had yet to slake his thirst for revenge. And so he continues on to Thebes, a nearby satellite city of Shechem, most commonly identified um, with the modern town of Tubas. It's about 13 miles northeast of Shechem, Uh, Thereabouts, where the residents of that town had locked themselves again into their fortified tower there, which was meant for this very purpose. And of course, Abimelech has just experienced great success in bringing down the tower at Shechem, and so he proceeds to attempt the very same strategy, to burn them out just as he did at the tower of Shechem. Only this time, an unnamed woman drops a grinding stone from the roof of the tower onto Abimelech's head, mortally wounding him by fracturing his skull. And of course, in the ancient Near East, it was a disgrace for a warrior to die at the hands of a woman. So Abimelech instructs his armor-bearer to kill him, to run him through with his sword, which he does. And then verse 55. What an anti to the story. It says, when the men of Israel, the men of Israel, when they saw that Abimelech was dead, Everyone departed to his home. It just confirms, of course, that Abimelech's army was composed of Israelites, God's people who had chosen to be ruled by someone other than God himself. And yet, this illegitimate king, the leader they allowed to rule over them, the one they believed would guide them to a better life, is laying their dead, leaving them disillusioned without any direction for their lives now. And so they have no choice but to return home without any of the purpose or prosperity that he had promised them. And then in the final two verses of the chapter, the true king of the Israelites is revealed. Let's finish the story for today. Verses 56 and 57. Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. You see, the Israelites were enticed by the promises of Abimelech. They were drawn to his power. They were confident in his claims. They saw him as a way to realize some kind of better future for themselves, but it turned out Abimelech was only in it for himself. He had no real power or authority to affect their ultimate outcome or even the course of the Israelites' daily lives for the better, as we see in the last two verses. It was God and God alone who had the final word. It was God alone who determined Abimelech's end. It was God alone who would judge the Shechemite people. It was God alone who would fulfill the curse of Jotham upon them because there was no other true king of the people of Israel but God alone. So you see, they had had no one to blame but themselves because they chose to be ruled by an illegitimate king. And the same stands true for us today. You can try to build your future on the promises offered to you by this world. But at the end of it all, no other king has the final word. That is as true for us today as it was then. At the end of your life, you won't answer to your spouse or your friends or your employer or your government or your bank account. No, at the end of your life, there's only one person you're going to answer to. That is God. Because he alone has the final word on all things. He alone is the arbiter of our eternity. He alone is the one we must give an account to for who or what we've allowed to rule over our lives. You see, it doesn't matter what the world may claim to the contrary or how far you may ever stray from the truth, God is still in control. Bible scholar K. Lawson Younger once wrote, Believers' apostasy can never negate God's sovereignty. He is in control whether they acknowledge him or not, just as he is in control whether unbelievers acknowledge him or not. R.C. Sproul said it this way, if God is not sovereign, then he is not God. You see, no matter what claims this world tries to convince you of, and we all know they will, there is no other king but Jesus Christ. He alone has the final word on all things, including your eternity. And in light of that eternity, this life on this earth, look, it is a mist. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes, James 4.14. We're here for a little time and then we vanish we vanish into eternity. And yet who or what we follow in this little time that we have on this earth determines where we end up for all of that eternity. Okay, so I'm not telling you to, uh, to hate money. But don't trust in money. Trust in Jesus Christ. I'm not telling you to hate everything this world has to offer but don't trust in what this world has to offer trust in Jesus Christ right I'm not telling you to hate uh, favorable circumstances in your life as they arise of course not but don't trust in those circumstances trust in Jesus Christ I'm not telling you to ignore the struggles that we all have to face in our lives. Of course, they're certain to come. But don't trust in the certainty of your struggles. Trust in the certainty of Jesus Christ. Why? Because He alone has the final word. He alone can supply all of your needs, Philippians 4.13. He alone can fill you with inexpressible joy, 1 Peter 1.8. He alone can satisfy the longing of your soul, Psalm 107.9. He alone can guard your heart and your mind with the peace that passes all understanding no matter what you are facing in this life, Philippians 4.7. Why is that? Because there's no other king but Jesus Christ and he alone has the final word on every single moment of your life. So yes, you may have lost your job and run out of money. Jesus has the final word. Your marriage may be falling apart. I'm telling you, Jesus has the final word. You may be facing the greatest battle of your life. Yeah, Jesus still has the final word. You may have no idea what tomorrow holds and from where you're standing, it doesn't look so good. You listen to me. Jesus has the final word. There are plenty of people in this world who are more than happy to tell you what you cannot accomplish with your life. I don't really care what they have to say because at the end of it all, Jesus has the final word. You see, the only limitations that you are bound to in this life are the ones this world places upon you when you follow someone or something other than Jesus Christ. And so look, you can read all of that in the Bible and you can listen to all of that in a sermon. But if you don't believe it in your heart, if that truth isn't actually influencing the way that you live your life on a daily basis, then in your heart you've forgotten who Jesus actually is and what he's done for you. Which I believe happens to be the case are so many Christians today people who are walking around defeated deflated de- depressed hopeless aimless because they've allowed other things to rule their lives and although they have a knowledge of Christ they've forgotten in their hearts who he is and what he's done for them He didn't die for you so that you could live your life defeated by this world. No, the apostle Paul said we are more than conquerors through what? Through him who loved us. For I'm sure, Paul said, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Romans 8, 37 through 39, Jesus didn't die for you so that you could have some kind of miserable life. No, he said, I came that they may have life and have it, what, abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, John ten ten and 11. Jesus didn't die for you, so you could spend your life aimlessly following the ways of this world. No, the Apostle Peter said Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, for the unrighteous. Why in the world would you do that? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 Peter 3:18. You see, if the reality of who Jesus Christ is and what he's actually done for you is not profoundly influencing the way that you live your life every single day, the decisions that you make, the risks that you take, the relationships you pursue, the sacrifices you make, the focus of every single thing that you take on every day of your life. If, if the rhythm of your daily life is not dictated by the relationship that you have with jesus christ then you've forgotten who he is and what he's done for you and if that is the case then it is time for us to remember he's the only true king no one else can do what he's done for you there is no other king because no other king gave his life for you and no other king has the final word for your life and for your eternity no other king but Jesus Christ let's pray